0: The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Today is the final week of our sermon series, Overcome. And throughout this season of Lent, we've been using this time to, to dive into some of the habits, in particular particularly the spiritual practice of prayer. Because of the season of Lent is not just a, a time where, we maybe, where maybe some of you might be, have a habit of giving up things. It also can be a time to give ourselves over to certain things that God encourages us to use. And so one of those practices is prayer. And for me, particularly, this, this series has been encouraging because prayer is a struggle for me. And, and it's not always a struggle like when I stand up here to know the words to say, but prayer, when it comes to my private life, to my habits that, that I have every day, it's a struggle. And so the series has reminded me that prayer is effective, that, that prayers actually work, that God wants me to speak to him, that God cares and he listens to me. It's been a reminder and a challenge to be intentional about the time and the place. It's been a reminder that when I pray, it's not just me speaking, but there's a two-way conversation where I speak. And then God also gives me his word so I can hear from, from what God has to say to me. And so today, as we continue to talk about the, our prayer life and the obstacles to prayer, today I want to focus in on a specific kind of prayer in a group of people that we pray for. Because we don't just pray for ourselves, and we don't just pray about the greatness of God, but we pray for other people. And today I want to focus in on a group of other people, those who don't know Jesus. Specifically, the, the mission-focused prayer that the Apostle Paul will encourage us to have. And so if you could open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1824. 1824. Now, several weeks ago when we began series, one of the series, one of the ideas and concepts that I highlighted to you um, what was this idea that, that brain research has discovered, and a number of neuroscientists have found that prayer actually has an impact on the human brain. And, and one of the things that's interesting about this is that regardless of whether or not you're Christian, what, what is proven by, by, by brain scans and just the evidence is that the, these spiritual practices, prayer, Meditation and, and religious singing, like gathering together and singing worship songs, they actually change the human brain. And those spiritual, those spiritual practices, the neuroscientists discovered that they actually, they actually impact the anterior cingulate, that, that a part of the human brain, that is the same part of the brain that makes you a more compassionate human being. So regardless of whether or not you even consider yourself a Christian, whether or not you believe it, those spiritual practices, those behaviors, actually form you into a more compassionate, a more loving human being. Now, I want to highlight just another part of the human brain that I think is fascinating, um, also connected to the kind of prayers that we are going to talk about today, and that would be the part of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is the part of the brain that is responsible for what what we know as the fight or flight system. And so if you're in a situation and and you need to survive, the amygdala is the part of the brain that gets activated so your body knows, do I fight? Is there some kind of weapon to grab? Do I have a weapon? Do I grab a tree branch? Like Do I use something? Or do I get out of there? Some researchers have actually said it's a fight, flight, or freeze um, kind of scenario, and so if you encounter a bear, right, your body chemicals get released in your body, and your amygdala activates so that your body then can survive. It figures out here, here's what I need to do, and so your body subconsciously determines: Do I run? Do do I freeze? Do I do nothing? Or do I fight back? Now, it's interesting in the research about the amygdala. It's not just the obvious scenarios though that activate. Your amygdala, this survival instinct, is not just uh, activated when there's obvious danger. There's when there's not so obvious situations as well. And so researchers have found that, that things like negativity, things like anger or outrage or insults or fear, all activate that same survival instinct. And so some of you may have experienced this before. Uh, an area where where, where, I, where, where I think I, I see it often would be the area of politics. Many of you, when it comes to, if somebody brings up the topic of politics, many of you um, will have this experience where your amygdala activates and figures out, all right, I need to survive this conversation, and so well, what do you immediately do? Now, some of you are like me, and you are the fleeing type. You run away from the conversation. This is not the time. This is not the place. I don't want to read the article. I don't want to see the post. I don't want to have the conversation. And so we run. Now, others of you, and you know who you are. I'm not going to point you out. Others of you, though, are the fighters, right? And so you get your gloves on because you need to fight for the truth. And so you fight back, and you battle, and you post, and you try to counteract. And the reason that happens, regardless of whether you're running away from it or rather or whether you're engaging it, is actually the same part of the brain gets activated. And so you're, you subconsciously believe that in order to survive, you need to respond by running or by fighting. Now, this also happens... In the spiritual world, when it comes to our faith, the same kind of thing can happen. Barna Research actually recently discovered in, in some of their surveys that, over, that almost half of Christian millennials actually believe evangelism is wrong. Now, now, now let me repeat that because I, I said Christian millennials. All right, they, they discovered that almost half of them actually believe that evangelism is wrong. The reason that I would suggest that this happens for many millennials, and, I would, and I'm on kind of the older end of millennials. I'm an old millennial. And so, um, what I, the reason I would suggest that happens is that for many of us, when it comes to evangelism, our amygdalas have been activated. That we, we, ha, we have experienced maybe bad versions of evangelism, or we've seen kind of the turn or burn version of preaching. Or even when it comes to, we just think about the neg- negative perceptions of Christianity, the way people feel um, judged, or the way people experience hypocrisy of Christians. And so many of us have all of these negative assumptions and negative feelings and associations in mind, which activates the survival instinct. And so some will respond, and I'm going to fight against that perception, but others, many, maybe almost half, run away from the idea altogether. They say, well, it's just not worth it. I'm, I'm better off not evangelizing, not sharing my faith. Another example where, now in a side note for for what it's worth with that, Barna in the same research also discovered that about 60% of non-Christians or inactive Christians are actually open to spiritual conversations. The caveat um, is that uh, that they want those conversations with somebody who would at least withhold judgment in those conversations. The problem is only one-third of those people actually know a Christian like that. And so that's the challenge for us is how do we have those conversations. Now another example of where this part of your brain can be significant, and that can be in a person's experience in the church. Because for many people what they have experienced in the church, and, and I would suggest that our church isn't, isn't really one of those, um, but it's often in a person's experience of religion is it's all negativity, right? It's all judgment, it's all law and no grace. It's all condemnation and no mercy. It's all do this but never what's been done for you. And what will happen, intuitively, a person knows, their body knows they need to survive. And so this instinct will kick in. And so when a person's bombarded with guilt, or when they feel too much shame, or when they feel fear, or when they try to feel like the, the, the institution's trying to control them, their body will react in such a way that they, that they try to fight back. They run away. Or maybe even some would feel paralyzed, feel trapped, yet have no trust, no hope. ...in it all together. This is also why I'm excited for a series we're beginning in just a few weeks... ...called For the Broken. And so this series we're actually going to begin... Um, ...the week after Easter. And so the series For the Broken... ...as is, 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 is I would suggest is it's related to what happens with the amygdala... ...because um, in the past 30 years what we have found is that in America... ...the number of people who don't identify with any religion has quadrupled. Or that number is increasing... And the reason it's increasing for many people is they've been broken. They've been hurt by, by religious people, by the church, by Christians. Now, the reason this happens is because hurt people hurt people. But often people have, their, their amygdalas have been activated, so they run, they hide, they get away. Because they have determined that the best way to survive is to get away from it altogether. And so we're going to have this series, this opportunity to talk to broken people, because we're all broken people, but also because you know broken people. Because you know people who've been hurt, by hurt, been hurt by other Christians, by Christian family members, by things that have been said, by things that have been done. And so what I really want to challenge you, and this is going to be related to what we're praying about today, is think of who are the broken people that you know in your life? Who are the people who've lost hope in the church? Who've lost hope in Jesus? Who maybe don't really want to be a part of it, who can we invite to hear, to listen? Because we believe the solution to that brokenness isn't a better plan or a better strategy, it's Jesus. That giving Jesus to broken people is the thing that can heal the brokenness and the wounds. Now in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul speaks of a battle. And this is important if we're talking about right the fight or flight response, The way the Apostle Paul begins to speak about this battle is an important place to begin because he reminds us of where the battle is, of what the battle is actually against. Because if we have the wrong idea for what the battle actually is, we're going to fight against the wrong things, the wrong ideas, the wrong people. So the Apostle Paul begins in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, when Paul begins, he reminds us that the battle's not against a person. The battle's not against a culture. The battle's not against an ideology or a worldview. The battle... Is against the evil one. This battle is bigger than what we often make it out to be. And so we might focus on an individual. We might focus on an idea. We might focus on words that somebody says. But Paul says, no, no, no. That's not what the fight is against. And in the evil one, when he fights, his strategy is simple. Can he convince people to not believe that God would love someone like that? That's the evil one's strategy. And so sometimes he'll do that by attacking the people who are trying to share the love of Jesus. And so if he can convince you that God couldn't love someone like you. If he could convince you that you, you don't have the ability or you don't have the leverage to share about the hope that you have. Then he wins. Or if he can convince people to believe that that kind of God just couldn't be true. That there couldn't be a God, there's no evidence for that kind of God. Or even this idea for God, this this idea just is too good to be true. A gracious, a loving, a merciful God. And so if he can convince people that that just couldn't be true, then he wins. Or sometimes he'll even convince people as they sit in the church. Convince them as they hear the rules and as they hear sin. And none of those are actually bad things. We, We teach those things. But what he'll often try to do is he'll take those things, he'll manipulate those things and try to convince you. Well, well, you know what God wants and you can't do it, so why would God ever love someone like you? See, the battle is against the liar who convinces people that God couldn't love someone like them. Or he'll convince people that God maybe one day could love someone like them. As long as they change a few things first. As long as they get their act together. As long as they improve a few areas of their life. Then maybe God could love someone like them. But not the way they are. And so Paul says, that's what our fight is against. And so he continues then and he will talk. In verse 13 he begins talking about the armor of God. He says, therefore put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now the the Apostle Paul here is about to list through the armor of God. And so he's going to go through the belt and the breastplate and the shoes and the shield and the helmet and the sword. And what's incredible about all of these things... Like, if he's trying to, con- he's trying to remind you, alright, the devil's the liar, that's who you're fighting against, and he wants to convince you that God couldn't love you, or that God couldn't use you, then he goes in, now, now the thing that you need is to, you need to be protected, you need to be strengthened for this battle. And so he lists out the armor, which is important because none of that, none of, the, none of what strengthens you or gives you courage in this battle actually comes from you. God gives it to you. And so he starts, right, the the belt of truth, put it around your waist, which is good. Because it's not our version of truth that is the thing that people need. People need God's truth. It's not our argument for the truth or our persuasiveness with the truth or our ability to clearly articulate it. No, God's truth will do what God's truth needs to do. And so God gives us his truth. And then he says and. ...with the breastplate of righteousness in place... ...which, which I think is, is that's my favorite out of all the pieces... ...because what we find in the breastplate of righteousness... ...is that the righteousness we have... ...our standing with God... ...our goodness before God... ...it doesn't come from ourselves... ...it's been given to us... ...it's been handed over... ...and so our sin, our shame... ...it covers over all of that... ...which is incredibly valuable... ...if we're thinking about all right, this battle that we're up against... ...like if you're trying to share your faith with somebody... See, one of the most common perceptions of Christians is that we're hypocrites. The breastplate of righteousness actually allows us to own that. Because we are hypocrites. I think the Apostle Paul said something like that when he said, The things I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Right? That's hypocrisy. And so this breastplate of righteousness actually allows us to say, you know, I am, I am a hypocrite. I don't do the things I want to do. I'm a train wreck. But when we're trying to share the hope of Jesus, the best way we can share about the righteousness that comes from Jesus is not by, sh- not by showing somebody that we've got our act together, but God could love someone like this, so he can probably love someone like them. Because we're not all that different. We're just trusting in the God who's given us his righteousness. So Paul says, take the breastplate of righteousness and then with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Which I can't help but think, like if I I wait for the moment I'm going to be ready, if if I'm waiting for the right opportunity or the right conversation or the door to open, I never take it. I'm always waiting. I'm always coming up with excuses. I'm always coming up with reason why it's not the right time or the right person or whether or not I am the right person. But Paul says, no, God gives us feet of readiness with the gospel of peace. In addition to this, he says, take up the shield of faith, which is important because if you're going into battle against the liar, he's going to attack. He's going to convince you that God couldn't love somebody like you. He's going to try to put doubts in your head. He's going to make you question it all. He's going to put situations in your life that make you hurt, that make you suffer, that make you think that other people aren't doing this with you. Yet the shield of faith protects you from his attacks. Allowing you to continue to hope even when it's difficult to hope. He says take the helmet of salvation. The salvation that comes not from you, but the salvation that protects your mind. To continue to believe, to continue to trust. He says and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He gives us the very thing that that cuts through the evil and that cuts through the lies. It's not our words, it's his word. And so the lies that people believe that God couldn't love them, that God couldn't forgive them, that their sin is too great. The sword that cuts through the guilt and and cuts through the shame is God's own words as God tells them, no, I love God. I forgive, I rescue you. See, Jesus prepares us, not by giving us a battle plan, but by securing our worth. The way that God prepares us for this battle, he doesn't map it all out. He doesn't give us the strategy. He simply says, I am securing who you are, that you are a child of God. You have been bought by the blood of Jesus. And so he secures that, he protects that, and that's the thing that gives us the strength of, ...for the battle. It's not a better plan. It's not a better communication strategy. It is simply, you are who God says you are. You are loved and you are forgiven. And no one can change that. And so Jesus gives us strength. And he gives us courage for that battle. He secures our worth. And so that battle for each of us might look a little bit different... For some of us, that's a, there's a battle within, a battle of insecurity and doubts. Do I have what it takes to share what I need to share? Do I have the kind of relationship to invite the person I want to invite? Do I even know what to say? Or is this going to hurt a relationship? For some, it's a cultural battle. Like, you look at the way that people react to Christians, and you, and you, and you wonder, is this going to hurt my, my relationship? Is this going to hurt a reputation? Am I going to bring something into the workplace that shouldn't be brought? And so there's this, these other tensions. For some, it's just a spiritual battle because you know you. And so the question is, all right, can I share about God's love when I don't know if I even always believe it? Or when I know I've sinned the ways that I've sinned, can I really carry out the mission of Jesus? And so there's this constant battle. This battle between the courage and our fears. See, courage sends us out. Courage prepares us. Courage gives us the strength to go into the conversations we didn't think we could have. Courage sends us out to go in the situations that God calls us to. But fear, fear keeps us in. Fear keeps us doubting. Fear keeps us questioning. But this courage, that courage doesn't come from within, it comes from outside of us. The place that courage is created is the place where Jesus shows his courage right in the face of the lies. Jesus stares all evil in its face and he goes to the cross. In courageousness Jesus faces the abandonment of his friends, the insults of people mocking him, he stares face death in its face and he hangs on the cross with courage to drive out all fear. Jesus His courage secures your relationship with him. Jesus' courage secures the reality that your sins are all forgiven. And Jesus promises to be with you and to go with you into every conversation. That's what gives you the courage. Our fears, our fears are trying to hold us back. Our fears are there because they try to remind us that that we don't have it what it takes. And we don't, but Jesus, but Jesus does. And so when we doubt, when we question, what Jesus does for us is he reminds us that he fights against those fears. And he's fought against it once. And if death and the devil and sin, if none of those could stop Jesus, it's still not going to stop Jesus. In First John chapter 4, John describes it by saying, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear." If Jesus really rose from the dead, what do we have to fear? Like if Jesus really actually rose from the dead, if death couldn't win, what what do we have to lose? If we have everything we need in Christ, what do we gain by succumbing to our fears? By letting the fears win. And so my question for you is when it comes to the people that God has placed in your life, what do you fear? What are you afraid of? Sin? Your inability? See, Jesus combats all of those fears with a fight that he already won. And so then Paul uses all of that then to inform our prayers. Prayers. Because the prayer is not just words to say, but this prayer is, is the cry we have as we go into the battle. And so Paul says, "All right, knowing all of that, knowing you are secured, knowing you are one, knowing that Jesus drives away every fear. He says, "Now this is what I want you to pray." And he says, "Now pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, which is Paul's way of just saying, pray for everything." Pray for the big things and the little things. Pray for the things that are very important and pray for the things that seem unimportant. And I love the way Paul say, says this because it complements what Jesus says really well when Jesus said, now go into your room and pray. Now it doesn't seem like it complements, but, but but it does in a very important way. A, a few weeks ago when, when Joe shared about this idea of having a, an intentional time and place, the way he compared it is it's kind of like a like a marriage or a, a relationship with a significant other. You need to have intentional time and conversation in those relationships. Well, one of the things that is also true of those relationships is you can't only have intentional time. And so now, now in, in, my, in, in my life, date nights as a parent are few and far between, and so that's all ultimately what I really want more of. But if my wife and I only could talk on those date nights, we would still have a problem. Right, if, I, if, if on Wednesday I said, hell, it's not Friday at 7 yet, we, we can't talk right now. Right, it, and those date nights are so important. The intentional, the time, the place, and the intimacy of those kind of moments matter. But so do the everyday, mundane, ordinary moments. Right, there's the deep and important, but there's also the very unimportant, the check-in. How was your day? How are you feeling? The thing that I'm not good at, responding to a text message. Right, it's those everyday, ordinary, little things that also matter. And it also teaches us in in our relationship with God that God cares about all the things. God's not annoyed by our little requests and our little thoughts and our little doubts and insecurities. And so Paul says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Now what also can get us caught up in in that little phrase is also that phrase, in the Spirit... Which we might read that and be like, oh, no, no, what what he wants from us is he wants this passionate, this heartfelt, right, this prayer. And and that's good, but really what Paul's after here is he's just saying pray with faith. Pray believing, right? That's what praying in the spirit means. Pray trusting that God cares, that God listens, that God wants you to share these things. And then with that in mind, Paul says, with this in mind, be alert. And always keep on praying for all the saints. So he moves on, praying for everything, all the things. And now he says, now I want you to also pray for the family. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for the family of God. People who follow Jesus, who you are doing life with. See, if we are the family of God, that means we're in each other's lives. It means we do life together. Maybe you don't know everybody in the room, but maybe you have a small group. And it means with with a group of people... You're in the mess. You're in the relationship struggles. You're in the doubts. You're in the questions. You're in the suffering and the sicknesses. You're in all of that. And so when Paul says pray for the family, that's what he's encouraging us to do. To pray for those things and to know those things and to love people in the midst of those things. And so that might be for you. That might be you're praying for someone and you let them know you're praying for them. For the others of you, that might mean you pray for somebody and you never even have to let them know that you're praying. But for us, as the family of God, we're not just praying for ourselves, we're praying for each other. And then Paul will continue, and what he does here is the part that is is the biggest challenge for me. And he turns not just from looking at the family, but he looks outside the walls. Outside the walls of the church, and 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 he begins to talk about the prayer for those who aren't in the family. And so in verse 19, he says, pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. See, Paul then moves and he says, I want you to pray for the mission. And this is the one that is challenging for me because it's very easy for me to focus in my prayer life on I can eat, I can I can pray for the about the greatness of God and the works of God and I can pray about my needs and sometimes I remember to pray for my family's need and my friends' needs but the people who are outside those circles but Paul says no pray for the mission pray for those who don't know Jesus and I can't help but ask myself like who are the names that I'm praying for who are the people Am I praying for individuals who don't know Jesus? Am I praying that, that God would put me in relationship with people who don't know Jesus? And So Paul would encourage us, no, yes, pray for the mission. And the reason we should pray for the mission is simple, because our heart should reflect the heart of God. See, a few weeks ago, when, when Joe used the Lord's Prayer as this framework for prayer, and he said, all right, the model is we declare God's greatness, we surrender to his will, and we ask him for what we need. I'm really good at number one and number three. Like, that's easy. I can talk about the greatness and the holiness and the power of God, and I can talk about what I need. Sometimes I'll even add what other people need. But surrendering to God's will, that's the hard part. That's the part where it fights against me, because I want what I want. I don't want to think about what other people Need In surrendering to the will of God, God's will is that the lost would be saved. God's will is that the prodigal would return. God's will is that those who don't believe would come to believe, to trust. And So do our prayers reflect the heart of God for the lost? Do you have people that you're praying for? And some of you might have names, some of you don't. And if you have names, can you add those names to your prayers? If you don't have names, are you praying that God would give you those names of those people? And it might be an open door for a conversation. It might be an open door for an invitation. It might be an open door just into a relationship itself. And so to be surrendered to God's will means that our heart reflects the heart of God. Now, and what I love about the way that Paul says this here is I think it's every one of us. See, we could make the mistake here and say, well, this is a prayer for Paul, and he's the expert, he's the pastor, he's leading that community, and so they, they're praying that he would be able to share, share the gospel, but it's not really a prayer for us. Um, and in that case, he is asking for prayers for him, but it's really a, it's a prayer for all of us. A prayer that we all would make the gospel known, and Paul's struggles are all of our struggles. Paul says, pray that whenever I speak, words might be given. If you have ever felt like you don't know what to say, that's what Paul's praying here. Now, if you're not sure who Paul is, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Paul does not have a shortage for words to say. And in this case, Paul's saying, I don't know what to say, so pray for me. I don't know what I'm going to say or how I'm going to say it or what's the argument to make or what what do I do. Paul's saying, pray that God would give me these words. The reason that Paul in his request says, pray that I will fearlessly make it known. The only reason you pray for fearlessness is that you have fear. Paul's afraid, Paul has doubts, he's unsure. And so if you fall in that camp, you're not alone because Paul's in the same situation. He says, I don't know the words, I'm afraid, I have questions, I'm not sure, but I know this is what God wants me to do, and so I don't know how I'm going to do it, but pray that I might have the strength and the courage to do what God's called me to do. And so our hearts, do they reflect the heart of God? Do they reflect the heart of God that we see in the book of 1 Timothy when, when Paul says it this way? He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the way that people are saved, God's grace always is given to us through other people. The place that you heard it, The place that I heard it always comes through another person. The incredible mystery of God's grace is he gives it to us through people. And so who are we praying for? What's the name on your heart? Who has given up on the church? Who's done with church? Who's not sure they're even interested in Jesus? what I want to do to close our service I don't think it'd be fair to talk about praying for the lost without actually taking some time to pray for the lost and so I want us to close with some time to pray and so I want to, I, if you have names I want you to use this time to pray for those names to pray for those names and those opportunities and those conversations and invitations whatever it might be to pray for those people that God has placed in your life if you don't have names pray that God would give you people that he would open the doors for connections, for relationships with people who don't know him. And so the band's going to play, and we're going to have an opportunity that these words that they sing can be our words. It can be a prayer that that God, give me this kind of courage, a courage and a strength to go out to share the hope that we have. And so as as they play, as they sing, we can pray, and then I will come up at it during part of the song and we'll use that to create some space for us to pray. And so I'll lead some words and I'll also give some space for you to pray your own thoughts and prayers all around this simple prayer that God asks us to do, to pray for those who don't know Jesus. And we might have fears and we might have doubts and we might not know the words to say, but Jesus gives us the strength in the courage to fearlessly make known the mysteries of God's promise.